I love that we're taking this look at faith. First, because Scripture talks a lot about faith, but also because we as humanity are drawn to the idea of faith. We have this constant desire for something more, something bigger, something better. We have this need for things to be fixed, for things to be set back right. We find ourselves looking for peace and fulfillment and contentment. And we look for those things by putting our faith in something to get us there. We have this need for faith hardwired into us because we want to see things different than they are. And we look to something or someone to make that happen. And we put our faith in that person or in that thing. Right now, you're putting your faith in something to make life better. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're looking for a promotion at work. Maybe it's a vacation that's coming up. Maybe it's the end of the school year. Maybe it's the beginning of spring to finally come. I keep saying the snow will be gone by June 1st. I think that'll hold. Um, But whatever it is, maybe it's an event that you're putting your faith in to make life better. Maybe it's not an event. Maybe it's an item. When I get a boat, go out fishing whenever I want, I'll be happy. Or, I've got a boat, but you know what, uh, 150 horsepower, it just, it's just not quite enough to get across, goal. I, I really need that 225, then I would be happy. Some of you are laughing, wives resist the urge to nudging your husbands, okay? Uh, maybe it's when my nest egg reaches this level, then I'll feel secure, when I move into that new house. Maybe for you it's not an event, it's not an item, maybe it's a person. When I finally find a boyfriend or girlfriend... When, (laughs) for somebody that is not the answer. (laughs) When I finally get married, when we finally have kids, when we finally get the kids out of the house, when we finally have grandkids, maybe you're putting your faith in a person to make things better, to find fulfillment, to find peace. You're looking at something To bring a change to your life. What is it? What is it for you? And is it working? Maybe a better question than is it working. uh, Is when you've realized the things that you've looked to to make your life better in the past. Have those worked? Because we can all convince ourselves that you know what? The 225 horsepower. That will really be it. But look back, when you got the 150 horsepower and you thought that was going to be it, was it? Did it really bring the fulfillment you were looking for? Think back to when you were 16 and you got your driver's license and everything was just going to be great. Was it as great as you thought it was going to be? Did getting married make everything sunshine and roses? The last time you bought something from Ronco off of a late night infomercial... Did you really save time, save money, and lose weight? Did you feel secure after you reached your last financial milestone? Or did you find that the goalposts had just moved a little bit further down? down? When you had that child, did all your dreams come true? Or did you find there were still things that weren't, that were hard, that weren't quite right? What are you trusting in today? What have you put your faith in in the past? Has it delivered? Will it deliver? This idea of faith is critical to our lives. And biblical faith delivers. 
Jesus is a firm foundation for faith that doesn't disappoint. I've got a definition of biblical faith that we're going to look at some this morning. Uh, Biblical faith is a firm and persistent trust in who Christ is and what he has done, which drives our identity, dictates our actions, and ultimately allows us to draw near to God regardless of our circumstances. For some of you type A people who are trying fervorously to write that down, it's going to come back up in a second, so don't worry about it. But let's take a look for a second at some of what the world thinks of when they think of faith. Not biblical faith, but the world's idea of faith. Here are a couple of images courtesy of Bing. Faith is seeing light within your heart when all your eyes see is darkness. What's that based on? What's the real hope there? It sounds nice. It's got the word faith in it. It's a nice script and all the rest. But there's nothing really there. Or maybe this one. When the voices of doubt start whispering, turn up the volume of faith and listen with your heart. Because we all know how steadfast our heart is. We all know how our wants and our desires never shift or change around. That's not going to work. Or perhaps ones that really rely on circumstances. Faith doesn't make sense. It makes miracles. And if you have faith, your circumstances will automatically change. That's not something we see in Scripture. Or this. Faith is knowing one of two things will happen. Again, dependent on what? Circumstances. There will be something solid to stand on or you will be taught to fly A little picture of a bird and everything. Isn't that nice? It might be nice. You might have it on your wall at home. If I offended you, I'm sorry, but go ahead, take it off your wall, put it in the garbage can, put a Bible verse up instead. You'll be doing much better because biblical faith is what we're after. Biblical faith is what delivers. Biblical faith is a faith that sustains and it's a faith that saves. Biblical faith, again, is a firm and persistent trust in who Christ is and what he has done, which drives our identity, dictates our actions, and ultimately allows us to draw near to God regardless of the circumstances. Let's go ahead and dive in. Let's look at this idea of biblical faith. The first ten chapters of Hebrews drive home this idea of persistent trust of biblical faith, of grabbing on tightly to Christ because he is better than anything else and not letting go. Let's start here in uh, chapter 1. This is, these first three verses of chapter 1 are a great summary of so much of what the author of Hebrews is writing. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The author of Hebrews is clearly laying out for us here that God speaks in Jesus. God speaks in Jesus. This whole idea of God speaking is one that we're familiar with as Christians, as people who come to church. And if we're not careful, our familiarity with it uh, can lead us to begin to ignore it. It can become too common for us, and we can miss it. Because, you see, we're people of the book, right? We come every week, and we open up God's Word, and we say, what does God's Word have for us? What is God going to speak to us today? 
Many of you study this word and examine it throughout the week. Maybe you gather uh, on a Wednesday night class or at BSF or at a small group or a growth group to say, okay, what does God's word say? I want to hear God speak. It's a wonderful thing. And it depends on the fact that God speaks. From the beginning of creation, God has been speaking. He spoke and the world came into being. And when Adam and Eve sinned and started to try to hide from him, what did God do? He called out to them. He spoke again. In the Old Testament, God gave his prophets. And according to Hebrews chapter 1 right here, it talks about God speaking through the prophets, what? At many times and in various ways. It wasn't a one-time event. It wasn't a once-and-done thing. God spoke through his prophets. He kept speaking through his prophets. He's a God who speaks. And it's true when God sends Jesus. You see in verse 3 that even now God is speaking in Jesus. At the end of verse 3 it talks about how Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Our God is a God who speaks. And that's critical. We have to start there. Because if God didn't speak, we would be lost. We would have no way of knowing what our faith should look like. God is infinite and powerful. We're limited and weak. If God didn't reach down to us and speak to us, giving us his word, ultimately giving us his son, we would have no way of knowing who he is. We would be hopeless and lost. If God was not a speaking God, we would have no reason for faith, and we'd have no way to create faith on our own. It's a simple, but it's a powerful truth, and we can miss it all too easily. So when we think about this idea that God speaks in Jesus, let's remember with awe and with gratitude that God speaks. And he speaks most perfectly, most completely in his Son, This is why biblical faith isn't just faith in progress or things working out somehow, but it's trust in a person. It's trust in the person of Jesus. The author of Hebrews goes to great lengths in these chapters to describe who Jesus is. He's exhorting us to have this firm and persistent trust in Jesus, so he takes care to show us that Jesus is deserving of our trust. We don't have time to look at everything in these first 10 chapters, but these just three short verses give us an excellent summary of who Jesus is. So let's look in verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. I love this sentence. Because what it's saying is it's saying that everything came from Christ, and it's all going back to him in the end. If we knew nothing else about Jesus, this would be enough to impress upon us his might and his power, his grandeur and his glory. This sentence alone would be enough to make Jesus a firm foundation for our faith. The author of Hebrews is covering everything from the beginning to the end in the first sentence that he writes about who Jesus is. In the beginning, you have that Jesus made the universe. John chapter 1 tells us that nothing was made that was not made by Jesus. That means Jesus himself was not created, but Jesus is creator. It all came from him. All power and authority is his because he made everything. 
And this power and authority is still his. Jesus isn't just some creator who makes the, everything and then steps away from it. Jesus is a creator who stays involved. He's not a deity who gets somehow usurped by another deity like the Roman or Greek gods and the myths around those. He's a God who is still in power. He is heir of all things. You think about what an heir is. An heir is somebody who knows that once certain events take place, they have an inheritance coming to them. We know that at the end of time, when God comes back and establishes his kingdom fully, that Jesus has that kingdom coming to him. He is the heir of all things. Everything will be firmly and forever put under his feet. His authority will be without question, and he will have no rival. Everything came from him. Everything's going to him. We can have a firm faith in Jesus and who he is. So let's think about biblical faith again, and let's just think about who Jesus is in light of that. We've got to have our faith in something that has the power to fix what is broken that is certain enough to hold the weight of all of our need for fulfillment and peace. We want to have our faith in something strong. Jesus is a sure and solid foundation. I love the way that the author of Hebrews uses time in these verses. He talks about how uh, Jesus create, made, it, made the universe in the past. He's the heir in the future. And then in verse 3, it's not just about the past and the future, but it's about what's going on now. In verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's sustaining now all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty heaven. This is what he has done, is doing, and this is where he is now. This description of who Jesus is in the ongoing present, he is the radiance of God's glory. It's this picture of God as the source of glory, the source of light that gives life, and Jesus as his son, the radiance of that light, or as the King James translation says, the brightness of his glory. Just as light comes off a candle and heat comes off a flame, glory comes from God. You can't stop it. You can't contain it. You can't dim it or damp it. Glory comes from God. And Jesus is the brightness of that glory. He is the way that it is seen and expressed. And the author of Hebrews is quick to say that Jesus isn't just uh, the brightness of this glory, the way the glory is seen or expressed and separate from it, Jesus isn't just an emanation coming from God, separate from God. Jesus is God himself. That's why he says uh, also in verse 3 that Jesus is the exact representation of his being. This sentence is one of the strongest statements in the New Testament for the deity of Christ. And taken together, this description about Jesus being the radiance of God's glory and the uh, exact representation of his being leaves no doubt about who Jesus is. He is God. He's not just a picture of God. He's not just a messenger from God. He's not just another prophet with a message. Not just another priest with a task. He is God himself. And as God, Jesus has not only come, but he has done God's work. You see the beginning of of the work um, that the author of Hebrews is talking about at the end of verse 3. 
after he had provided purification for sins. That's the work that God sent Jesus to do. God has not only spoken in Jesus, revealing who he, who God the Father is, but he has also acted in Jesus. He's provided for our deepest need, and ultimately he has opened up a way for us to draw near to God through Jesus. See, biblical faith, again, is a firm and persistent trust in who Christ is and what he has done that drives our identity, dictates our actions, and ultimately allows us to draw near to God regardless of our circumstances. And we can do that because of the work that Jesus has done. Let's flip over to chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Providing purification for sins out of of chapter 1, there's a good summary of the work that Jesus has done. And in verse 4, 14 to 16, it's kind of expounded on a little bit. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is describing for us the work that Jesus has done. And it's putting it in the language of Jesus as a priest. This is one of the author of Hebrews' favorite metaphors, for favorite pictures for who Jesus is and what he has done. In fact, the word priest is used more often in Hebrews than in any other New Testament book. And to understand what it means that Jesus is a priest, we have to first remember what any priest is. Simply put, a priest is a go-between. He's a mediator between humanity and God. You see this repeatedly in the Old Testament, where the priests act on behalf of the people in their relationship to God, in their relationship to Yahweh. And though the priests have this critical role in the Old Testament, they consistently fail in it. It's not so with Jesus. You see, as a priest, as a perfect priest, Jesus has been where you are. He did what you cannot do, and he is where you want to be. Let's focus first in on this idea that Jesus uh, has been where you are. Look again at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. I want you to think back on your life for a second to a moment when you've been tempted, to a moment when your weakness was most felt by you. Maybe it was a temptation to sin. Maybe it was a temptation to abandon your faith. Maybe it was a a time of anger at God that came with deep sorrow and sadness. I don't know what it was for you, but What's a time when you most felt your weakness? When you were most tempted to let go of your faith? And what was most helpful to you then? Was it somebody who was distant but really smart? Who was maybe really eloquent? Had a lot of studying and a lot of answers? Was it somebody who came across as strong and happy and always had a smile on their face? No. It was somebody who had been through pain. And all the better if it's somebody who's been through a pain like yours. 
You're most helped by somebody who has faced the same temptations you have. In our time of greatest need, the people that are most helpful are the ones who have walked through the valley, the ones who have been where we are. There's great power in that. There's great power in knowing that somebody has been where you are. There's great hope and strength in that. It's easy to trust someone who has gone through what you're going through. And Hebrews is calling us to have a firm and persistent trust in Christ. And the author wants us to know that we're trusting someone who has been where we are. We're trusting someone who, as the prophet Isaiah said, is a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And not only familiar with pain in general, but again from Isaiah, someone who took up our pain and bore our suffering. We can persist, you can persist in trusting Christ because he's been where you are. And not only has Jesus been where we are, he has done what we could not do. It's not a lot of help to have somebody who's been in a similar situation if they responded poorly, right? It doesn't matter if somebody else has taken the test if they failed the test. That's even less help to us than somebody who hasn't been through the pain that we've been through or hasn't been in a situation like we've been in. No, if we're going to trust somebody, they need to not only have been where we are, they need to have done what we're trying to do. And in Jesus' case, he did what we could not do. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He never failed. His faith never wavered. He never succumbed to temptation. He's been where we are, and he did what we couldn't do. He's a solid foundation. A solid foundation is so important. When Allison and I came up here and we were looking at homes, there's this one home, it was actually new construction, and we walked into the basement, and it is nice, you know, and all the rest, and looking at things, and poking in rooms, and we walk into the furnace room in the basement, and unlike the rest of the basement, of course, the furnace room doesn't have any flooring, any carpet, or anything in it, uh, and we see this big crack running across the floor. This isn't just like a hairline crack, this is like a gap, right? Like, wow, that looks kind of big. And one of the first things, the realtor knew that I noticed it, one of the first things he said is, hey, this, this doesn't mean it's anything wrong with the foundation, okay? The, the, what they do is they put the foundation around the edges, and then they put the, the poured cement floor in the middle, and the poured cement floor in the middle can have some problems from shifting and settling and all the rest, but it doesn't mean the foundation's bad. He knew right away that he had to, make, he had to assure me about the foundation if I was going to consider this house at all. Because if we're going to put our trust in something we got to know the foundation is good. The author of Hebrews knows this. That's why he tells us that not only has Jesus been where you are, he has done what you cannot, what we cannot do. He's taken the test. He's passed. He's come through with flying colors. And because of that, he is where we want to be. Our firm and persistent trust in Jesus allows us to draw near to God regardless of the circumstances. And drawing near to God is where we want to be. It's in drawing near to God that we find mercy and grace to help us in our times of need. It's in drawing near to God through Christ that we find forgiveness of our sins. The author of Hebrews specifically points out that Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus is with God right now. Not only is he there, but the fact that he is where we are and done what we couldn't do allows us to approach 
God. To come near to God with confidence, with certainty, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That brings us to chapter 10. Let's flip over to chapter 10, starting in verse 19. I want us to see a connection between what happens in chapter 4 and what happens here in chapter 10, starting in verse 19. You see, in chapter 4, the author laid out two different reasons, two different facts, and then he encouraged, he exhorted action because of those facts. He said, um, we have a great high priest So let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And he talked about how that high priest, Jesus, is uh, he's been with us in our weakness and he was tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin. And because of that, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So we approach God's grace in Hebrews chapter 4 because we know who Jesus is. Now, in chapter 10, this idea of approaching God's throne of grace with confidence becomes not the action that we are called to do, but the reason for more actions. Chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and then he goes on to describe that uh, by a new and living curtain, open, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And then after setting that foundation of our confidence to draw near to God, he gives us three things that we need to do. There are three ways that Jesus' work drives our lives. Jesus' work drives our lives. First, in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Let us draw near to God. This is no longer just an invitation. Now this is an exhortation. Drawing near to God is not something that we simply can do. It's something that we ought to do. Last week in our celebration of Easter, Brian ended the service with an invitation to just come home. Just come home. I want to extend that call again to us as a church family. Maybe you're here this morning and church feels... Uh, like home to you, you're familiar here, you've been here a long time, but at the same time as you've been going to church all your life, you know you're distant from God. Maybe you're trying to avoid him because you know that you're being disobedient and you hope that if you can keep him at arm's length, you can continue to ignore his commands. Maybe you'd love to draw near to God, but you can't right now because there's a pain, there's a hurt that runs too deep And you're afraid going back near to God will start to pick at scabs that you can't bear to have touched. Maybe you can't draw near to God because you're angry with Him and you can't trust Him. If this is the case, I would ask you, I would invite you to just come home. Engage again in that firm and persistent Trust in Jesus that orders your life around obedience to him and trusts that he loves you and he is for you regardless of the pain that he has allowed into your life. Or maybe you're here this morning and church is new to you. The idea of drawing near to God is foreign and you don't even know what it might look like. Well, here's what it looks like to draw near to God. It looks like refusing to rely on your own version of what is right and wrong and instead looking to God's commands for how we would live. 
It means giving up your attempts to be good enough and to earn salvation and instead trusting what Jesus has done for you. It looks like surrendering what you want out of life. It looks like recognizing that all you're chasing after happiness is futile anyway because as soon as you get a little bit closer, it slips further away from your grasp. Drawing near to God in Christ looks like giving up your life and being willing to die, knowing that it's in giving up our life that we save it. And it's in being willing to die that we find life. Jesus is a firm foundation for faith. He made the universe at the beginning of time and he will inherit all things at the end of time. He's been where you are. He has done what you cannot do and he is where you want to be. Will you draw near to God through him? Will you commit yourself again this morning to a firm and persistent trust in who Christ is and what he has done? It's the first thing that we're called to do. Draw near to God. Second thing in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed. For he who promised is faithful. Some of you this morning need to hear this. You need to be reminded to hold on. Hold fast. Don't give up. You love Jesus. You're drawing near to God. But it's difficult You don't know how long you can hold on, how long you can keep trusting. You're standing strong against temptation, but you feel your resolve waning, and you're all too aware of your weakness. You look to Scripture, and it just seems ink on a page, or you try to pray, but you're sure that your words are just bouncing off the feeling, and God seems silent, He seems distant, He seems absent. Hold on! Don't let go! Remain steadfast in the hope that you proclaim in Christ. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. God has not left you. He has not forgotten you. He is not too far off. He is not too weak to save. He is faithful. No matter how dark your circumstances seem today, they are not so dark as to extinguish the light of his glory. Your needs are not so big that he cannot meet them. Your sin is not so horrible that he cannot forgive because of the price that Jesus paid at the cross. The one who has promised to free you from your sin one day will raise your body after you have died and he will set all things right when he returns. He is faithful. He will do it. So hold on. Hold fast. Don't lose hope. And lastly, an invitation, an exhortation, not just to us as individuals, but to us as a family in verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. We can't give up on the times when we gather for mutual encouragement. The author of Hebrews knows that the Christian life is a group project. Okay, We weren't made, we weren't intended to do this on our own. We can't do it alone. We need one another. I've seen this in my life. You've seen this in your life if you've been following Christ for any length of time. Maybe it's a Sunday morning when you've come in and you have had a hard week and a hard month. 
And you want to sing of God's goodness. You want to sing of his faithfulness. But the words won't come. And you look out on the congregation and the words out of your heart join with the words out of their mouths. And our faith again is strengthened. Maybe it's a time when you want to pray and you just can't keep praying. And a brother, a sister, a friend comes along and says, you know what, I'm praying for you. And our faith again is strengthened. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is why it's so important that we gather together on a Sunday morning. This is why we encourage you again and again to get involved in a growth group, get involved in a small group, get involved in an ABC, be with other believers. We can't do this on our own. The author of Hebrews knows this. He exhorts us, he encourages us. Consider how we might spur one another on how we might grab hold of Christ strongly together. If you're here this morning and you know you need to draw near to God, or you know that you need to hold more firmly to your faith, and you need to be encouraged in that, don't leave without connecting with somebody and asking them to encourage you. Don't let your pride get in the way. Don't think that you have to have it all together. You don't. None of us do. Stop and pray with the person that you came with, your friend, your family member. Ask them to encourage you. There are people that will be back in the corners wearing yellow uh, badges that just say, may I pray with you. You know why they're there? They're there because they want to pray with you. That's why they're wearing the thing that says, may I pray with you. They want to pray with you. Let them. Be encouraged. This is what it looks like to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. If you don't know somebody that you came with, or if you'd rather not stop back there, I can be up here as a last resort. I'd be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to pray with you and encourage you. Uh, maybe if you're looking to follow Christ and draw near to God for the first time, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But don't leave today without taking time to be encouraged where you need it. Without strengthening that firm and persistent faith in who Christ is and what he has done that drives what we do and allows us to draw near to God regardless of the circumstances. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a foundation and we have a resting place for our faith. We thank you that he is creator and heir, that he has been where we are and he has done what we could not do. God, would you help us now to draw near to you? Would you strengthen us so that we can hold fast to our faith? And would you equip us to encourage one another in you? For your name, for your glory, amen.